We'll begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where we read this part of the Christmas story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler, who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, or presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And may the Lord bless his word as we have it read into our hearts today. The events of the wise men's visit and Herod's awful crime take place sometime after Jesus was born and maybe in a sense of months later, certainly weeks later. And uh, we, we have the word here in the scripture that there were these men who show up. Now, they were warned or there was a, a sign in the star or in the sky, a star appeared. Now, these men are called uh, wise men by an English translate translation, but a lot of times we refer to them as the Magi, which is closer to the original language. What are Magi? Well, if you've ever heard the word uh, a magistrate, a magistrate is a ruler. So if you are uh, one of the Magi, these were rulers. These were men who were magistrates. They were men who had some power and authority. It's likely they either came from Persia or Babylon because in that part of the world, they would have been able to have a great amount of knowledge about the Old Testament scriptures, because Daniel, who worked both in Babylon and in Persia, had, was a godly man who left behind a godly influence. And I believe that Daniel himself had left behind a school of study that these men studied and they knew the scriptures. And when the star appeared, they said, this has to be the star that is telling about the coming Messiah. And the Old Testament has all kinds of stories that depict this story. But when they arrive, what do they do first? Well, the first thing they do is they get there to Jerusalem, which is not that far away from Bethlehem. But they didn't know where to go. I mean, they literally, this is a foreign place to them. So they're on their way. Now, we don't know how, whether there were three of them or not. We only know that they are three, uh, we, they had three gifts. So this is why we think it's three wise men. But there's nowhere in the Bible it says there were three wise men, just three gifts. But they get to Jerusalem and there they meet with the king, King Herod. Now, Herod was a man who was of strange contradiction. Herod was a guy who was a great builder. Uh, he could absolutely build anything. He built a whole uh, city called Caesarea in honor of Caesar. And so he was a man who could build cities and he made a deal with the Jewish leadership to make the temple complex, which took decades and decades to make. So this was a, a great project. It was such a great project that when Jesus was in the temple, his own disciples says, isn't this a, a great place? Which is when Jesus said, you see this place? Not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, and uh, it shows you how much Jesus really cares about buildings, but certainly Herod did. But Herod was also a vicious man. He, would, he personally had family members murdered if he had any sense of jealousy of them. He just killed them. So we know that from this story as well. But when Herod hears that there's going to be a new king, that gets him scared. And his officials are scared because he's scared. And they're all troubled. What are we going to do? 
So they go and they get the experts in. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Which then, of course, that brings you back to uh, the book of uh, Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And we read that earlier today. But that area used to be called Ephratah. Now, Ephratah is a word that means fruit, fruitful, okay, a fruitful place. And it was on the way to the fruitful place, Ephratah, that Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was in labor with her second son. And uh, unfortunately, she had trouble giving birth to her son. So she knew that she was going to die because of this son. She named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my suffering. But Jacob, thankfully, said, I'm not naming him Ben-Oni. I'm going to name him Benjamin, which is my right-hand son. So Benjamin was born, but Rachel died. And she was buried at Ephratah. And later, this place is known for its wheat barley harvest, so they, they named the place a new name, Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem, Ephratah are the same place or near each other, certainly that area. And it's not by accident that God chose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of Jesus because literally he was born in the house of bread. He's the bread of life. He is born in the house of bread. Bethlehem was also the home of, of Ruth, and Boaz, and it was the home of King David. So the Bible says that it's here in Bethlehem that the ruler would appear, and they had that prophesied hundreds of years earlier. So Herod tries to try to outsmart the wise men. He says, go find him in Bethlehem, but when you find him, Please send word back because I want to honor him too. He's lying, but he's thinking he can fool them. So they go their way. Now, at that point, they see this star. And uh, of course, the star fought, moves, which is why I don't believe the star was some natural phenomena. I, I hear these stories of people trying so hard to say it was a comet, it was this comet or this comet, or it was this particular a conjunction of, of planets, whatever you want to say. But if it was a conjunction of planets, it would have lasted for one day. You see, planets are moving. They're always moving. The stars that are in the background, they only move like with the sky itself, but they, in relation to each other, they don't move, but the planets do move. And in this case, the star that they saw moved and actually directed them where to go. And let me say to you that it's no big deal. You know, I get at night before I started realizing, did you know if you see some drone in the sky, it looks like an alien UFO. I mean, literally at night, you got people in our community, they'll fly their drone at night. I say, what in the world is that? I'm getting, well, I'm gonna have to call somebody. Look at this site and it's moving and it's not moving. What am I gonna do? But it's just our technology. If we and our technology can put a light in the sky that moves and gets our attention, 
how hard is it for God to do the same thing? Not hard at all. So God obviously did it. The wise men uh, then find the child and, uh, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy because evidently the star was hidden from them and then suddenly they see it and it's moved and they came into the house. This is why our nativity scenes are almost all wrong <laughs> because our nativity scenes combine everything. We put the shepherds, we put the wise men, Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus, and the sheep and the animals, everything there. There's nothing wrong with the nativity scene in the sense that we want to find a quick way to tell the whole story. But by this time, they're not living in a cave or a barn. They're in a house. So Joseph probably found some work or something there. He was a, he was a carpenter. Did you know that the word for carpenter, we get the word technology from? So basically, he's a, 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 a person who's a handyman. He can solve problems. He's good with his hands. He's good to figure things out. I think about our, our dear brother, Walter. He, he did not believe in buying new things. He, he always had to maintain something, you know, had to keep on going, you know. Uh, you know, he'd spend hours and hours. And Wednesday, I'll probably share a similar story, but he'd spend hours looking and figuring out how I'm going to get this fixed. How many times we say, get another truck or get a new this or get a new that. It was like bending his arm, you know, backwards to get him to do anything. But he he had the sense that, hey, I'm going to figure it out. And he'd get somebody and they'd figure it out. Joseph was a was a kind of guy who was a figure it out type of guy. And they used his work and he probably made a, a, a modest living. So they were living in the house. And then these three, I don't know if they're kings or not. They're rulers, they're magistrates. But the three magi show up. Now, that had to startle them because who are these people, you know? Would you like to have some, uh, some unmarked uh, fancy government cars come into your house and knock on the door? What have I done wrong today, you know? I hope they're not after me. But in fact, in this case, they, were, they did nothing wrong. They came with their... And you know they weren't traveling alone. They had to have their own guards. They had, you know, in those days it was very dangerous to travel anyway. So they probably had their own uh, soldiers with them, so or police or whatever you're going to call them. So it was a large number of people. But the, these men show up, and they see the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And I've often preached that wise men still seek Jesus and worship him. And I think that's so true today. I think that you and I, to be wise, will bow down, seek him, bow down to him, and offer to him whatever we have because he deserves it. He is alone worthy. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. I heard a story about a little boy who asked his daddy, he says, Daddy, why are there monsters in the Bible? I said, what do you mean, monsters in the Bible? He says, well, it says they gave him gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. <laughs> these are not inexpensive gifts. And these gifts tell a story themselves. Gold is a kingly gift. 
to this day, if you get gold as a gift, you, you're not going to say, oh, that's no big deal. You're going to say, wow, that's worth some money. And it is really worth a lot of money. We're near record highs for gold at the time I'm preaching this message. So certainly worth a lot of money. I mean, I, I don't know, a couple of pounds of gold would, would go a long ways, don't you think? And this little chest such as they bring may have been several pounds, a couple of pounds. Who knows how many ounces of gold they had, but they had enough gold there to present to them. And I'm, I'm sure they didn't say, here's a gold coin. I'd say that they had a, a significant amount of gold there. Certainly a, a small fortune. And then frankincense. Frankincense was uh, used in uh, the priestly duties to, to burn. And of course, it, it was worth money as a fragrance and it was worth a lot for religious purposes. So this incense was used, it made a great perfume. And then myrrh, which was used and mostly associated and often with the death of people, but myrrh was used to help uh, uh, clean up things and to uh, disinfect things. But certainly myrrh is, was used at death whenever they were treating a body for death. And those three gifts are symbolic of who Jesus the child was. Gold is a kingly gift. He's a king of kings and the Lord of lords. Frankincense is a priestly gift. He's a high priest, the greatest priest. He represents us to God as our priest. And myrrh is a prophet, a prophet's gift because so many prophets risked their lives and did lose their lives to honor the Lord. And so that's what happened. The, they gave him the gifts suitable for a king, a priest, and a prophet. Now the scriptures doesn't leave it there. Uh, then they were warned in a dream that they should go a different way. Don't go back to Herod. And that's buying time for Jesus. All through this story, there's an amazing cooperation that's happening. God is warning people what to do, and the people are obeying what God says. Now, God can do whatever he wants. God could have sent an angel and just picked up all three of them and taken them out. But you know what? They were not magically taken out of Bethlehem and flown to Egypt. How did they get there? They got there because they had to walk or they had to ride an animal to get there. And they had to go to a foreign country and spend an indefinite amount of time. I used to have fun, I, I, and I still do when I teach this part of the story, is I try to get the kids to estimate uh, using our best guess as to how much gold that they had what the value of gold is today, and then calculate how much that they need if they were told to go live in a foreign country for two years or so. And did you know that it would take you a lot of money to take your whole family and to pay for rental of a house and pay for your food and live in a foreign country? It'd take a lot of money to do that today. And yet, it's about the same amount of money that it would have taken them in that little chest of gold that they had. So God was giving them that gold to, to help them to get through this process so they could actually live 
and not have to worry about being a foreigner in, a, in, a, in another land. So they, they could pay their way. They, could, they were not wealthy, but they had enough to get by and live while they had to live there. And so the Bible says that they, the, the wise men go a different way, but King Herod is not happy about this. He gets the word that they didn't come back. So then he plots, I'm gonna kill every one of these kids. I'm gonna kill them all. When did that star appear? Okay, probably up to two years old, we're gonna kill all the boys, not just in Bethlehem, but in all the area around it. This is a horrible, horrible man, but he did it nonetheless. But by that time, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus had already left to go to Egypt. They had gotten out of town and out of those districts, and they made it all the way, which was also important because if you'll read there, uh, it says that the wise men, they departed for their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So they leave and they go all the way to Egypt. It takes about two weeks to walk that. So if you're gonna walk to Egypt from Bethlehem, about a two week journey on foot, maybe a little bit more, but it certainly uh, takes you a little while to get there. So he gets there, and uh, the Bible even says that this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, in the Old Testament days, they thought that, that referred to Israel, because remember, the nation of Israel was in Egypt, and they got taken out of Egypt when they had the 10 plagues, and then they crossed the Red Sea. And that verse originally, they thought, meant the nation of Israel. But in fact, that verse, the ultimate meaning was intended to say that Jesus, the Son of God, would come out of Egypt. Now, Herod ends up killing these, these, these children, and uh, even the Bible predicted that, that when it says Rachel weeping for her children, where is Rachel buried? She's buried in Bethlehem. You can go there to her tomb, I think, today, at least go to where the traditional site of her burial is today. I guess you can't go today because they're having war, but still, you could go if it was peaceful and go to that place. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Uh, this week, we lost somebody in our church who was 96 and a half years old. We grieve over that. But Walter lived a long life, a full life in so many ways, uh, these babies didn't get a chance. And you imagine that maybe as many as 2,000 children were murdered, and how many mothers were could not be comforted because of their grief over losing their children, and not because of simple illnesses or accidents, even though those, those are terrible too, but I mean, somebody deliberately murdered these children. There's something about the Christmas story that should remind us that there's a lot of evil in the world and people do harm. And so just like the people in this story who did well obeyed God and Jesus was protected because people made good choices, 
People have the right to make bad choices and bad things do happen in this world. And we do not escape this world thinking, oh, nothing bad is ever going to happen. That's a lie. Because bad things happen every day to somebody. And somebody gets murdered almost every day. And the evil that Herod had in his heart is in the hearts of people throughout the world. We need to not paint the picture that everything in this world is guaranteed to be good. Because it isn't. There are too many bad things. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true today. However, one thing that is for sure, that though the evil happens, it never stops the saving mission of the Lord. God does not stop saving and does not stop the Savior, even though the devil tries. So whatever blows that are inflicted upon us and whatever evil hits our way, it doesn't matter because yes, we will lose, but God is not going to lose his saving power. And he's not going to, the devil is not gonna interrupt what God planned through sending Jesus into the world. We learn in other gospels and in other parts of the Bible that Mary hid this information in her heart doesn't even tell it out till later because she was a discreet person. She did not tell everything she knew. She kept things quiet because she was the protector of her son and she had a duty to protect him. So when they arrive in Nazareth, I don't even think she told Jesus all that happened about his birth. I don't even know that she told anybody what was going on. Later on, we find out that the, when Mary and Joseph have more children, that these children, they don't treat Jesus the way that they would later when he rose from the dead. I don't even think she told this story to any of these people. She kept it secret, which is very strange. But she did that because she knew that by talking, she could maybe get the word out and people could trace them down and harm them. That's why her obedience is to be valued. She was faithful and Joseph and Mary, to their credit, and thank God for it, protected that boy and raised him and did what was needed. And God protected them. So God gave them the means through giving them these rich gifts, and God gave them the direction, and they followed that direction. And they ended up living in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a not really a very famous place in terms of it was a place where you would not go for anything that was important. It was just a place out in the middle of the, the sticks, I guess. But that was the perfect place to raise Jesus, and that's where he lived, and that's where he was raised. The scripture says that after a while, Herod dies. We believe that this happened uh, maybe when Jesus was still a toddler, and he uh, they end up moving back, but they move back, and they get to Nazareth, and then, of course, the rest, as we say, is history. Christmas is a time of great joy, 
It's a time of great grief. It's a time where almost all of us have lost someone around Christmas time so often. I mean, I can go back in history and look at my family or look at people. I've, I've either lost them around Thanksgiving or lost them around Christmas. So it's a place of giving. It's a time, uh, it's a time of giving. It's a time of receiving. Uh, when you're a child, you can't wait for Christmas because you want to see what you get. But as an adult, you don't get so encouraged by that. You like giving better than receiving, which is exactly what Jesus said. It is better to give than to receive. And now it's also, as we find in this story, a time of great loss for many people. Many people lose at Christmas time. But thank God that little baby in the, in the manger and the little baby that moved was, was actually the object of worship of the wise men. And that little baby who moved to Egypt and then later came back and was raised in Nazareth, that little baby would grow up to be a man and he would win the battle against Satan that Adam couldn't win. And he would overcome the world. And by doing that, he would die on a cross, but wouldn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and we have hope in him forevermore. Thank God for this baby and thank God for Mary and Joseph. Thank God for the wise men, all of whom played their part in this story. And they, get, they deserve credit for obeying the Lord when the Lord spoke. The only thing I could say to you is that this year, we got a new year starting tonight at midnight. What kind of year do you want? Do you want, if you're alive on this earth on December 31st of 2024, and if the Lord doesn't come back, do you want to look back on the year that's 2024 and have regrets? Or do you want to actually look back on the year and say, I made some changes in my life that were worthwhile and godly, and I actually listened to God and I did what he said. Because you notice what God's always telling his loved ones? He's not giving them meaningless advice. He's telling them, do this because you've got something to do that's very important. And we need to do the same thing. Regardless of what our plans are for the year, don't ever run away from the simple plan. When God says to do it, do it. Okay? I mean, if you just live by that one rule, whatever God says to do, do it. I think everything else will work out fine. I mean, think about it. Mary and Joseph, if they had been told, you've got to go do all these things, they would say, how could we afford it? How are we going to make it? But God took care of them. God, if he has to send a star in the sky to take care of you, he will do it if you're doing his will. Because that's how important his salvation mission is. And you're a part of that too. And Jesus said this, whenever his relatives, and, uh, and I'm gonna close with this, when Jesus was preaching one time, his family were outside of this place that was crowded, a house, I think, like a villa. And, uh, and they, they sent a message to Jesus. And the, message, the messenger said, your family are out there, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, they're out there, they want you to come to see them. And Jesus asked a very strange question. Who is my brother? Who is my mother? Who are my sisters? He says the same as 
he who does the will of my father is my, my mother and my brother and my sisters. So don't think that being physically kin to Jesus guarantees that you are only eligible to help him as a close relation. He actually says, if you do the will of the Father, you're already part of his family too. And so I think in heaven, the Christmas story is still being written. And in heaven, they're gonna have a great service someday. And it's gonna be a long one, but we got lots of time. And we're gonna be able to say, hey, I wanna see the Christmas story again. But you're gonna hear names you've never heard before. And you're gonna hear, and guess what? Along the way, they're gonna mention your name because you obeyed the Lord and you did his will. And somebody, because of what you did, was influenced for God. And you continued the Christmas story uh, in your own way. So you're part of that story too, just like Mary and Joseph and the, the unnamed wise men. We all have our part to play. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Lord, thank you for this day. Please help us as we uh, have this invitation time. Would you please give us your grace to do your will because I know without you, we could do nothing. And I thank you for these who are here. Make this year that's coming up far better than what the one was we just went through. And may we make those choices that are wise choices. In Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson is in Psalm 64. I'm gonna read just one verse right now, then I'll read more later. But it's Psalm 64, verse 10, the last verse. Because that's gonna be the theme that I want us to take into this new year, this verse 10. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. And may the Lord bless his word as we have it read into our hearts today. Uh, at Christmas time, a little child was in a Sunday school room and was told to, to, to draw a picture of the Christmas story. And one of the things they talked about was uh, when the Mary and Joseph and them went to Egypt. So she drew a picture of an airplane with four people on board. And the teacher said, who is that? And she said, well, that's Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And they were, of course, on the airplane. He says, well, uh, why did you put them on the airplane? She said, well, it says they made their flight to Egypt. <laughs> but who's the fourth person? Oh, that's Pontius, the pilot. <laughs> smart little child, very smart child, obviously had studied her Bible. So... The righteous shall be glad in the Lord, trust in him, and the upright in heart shall glory. Those are three very powerful things, uh, quite the opposite of what we feel a lot in this world, because the opposite of being glad is being sad, and the opposite of trust is worry, and the opposite of being uh, glorified and is to be humiliated. And, and those are the things we dread, isn't it? We don't want to be sad. We certainly don't want to be worried. And we certainly don't want to be humiliated in this world. If you think about it, those three things are extremely important to us as human beings. So what do we need to do then to make what the Bible says in verse 10 happen 
in our lives and apply to this year because I really believe God wants us to be people who follow his word. And I don't think that our joy, our faith, and our glory is in any way dependent upon what our enemies do. Now think about that for a moment. We live in a world where we are constantly given bad news. I mean, think about it. It's the daily, they used to call newspapers the daily disappointment. <laughs> the daily disappointments. Now, it, we don't have as many people reading newspapers, so they're reading online. So I call it daily disappointments because that's the same thing. You are going to find in this world that the devil doesn't want us being glad. He wants us to be sad. He wants us to be down. He wants to encourage that. Now, the Bible tells us so many ways how to avoid it, but we keep making the same mistakes. Jesus, for instance, said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, there's a big difference between mourning and being depressed. Depression is when I'm sad and I want to hold on to it and think about it a lot, okay? That is, that's going to be depression. Uh, and uh, I, I, I like what my friend Monty McWhorter used to tell us when, this is back when I was in college. He said, impression without expression leads to depression. <laughs> and I think that's so true is that if you've got nowhere for it to go and all you are is focused on the negative that's happening to you, that pressure just builds up, builds up, builds up like a pressure cooker that has no release. And sooner or later, you're gonna have an explosion. And that's not what you wanna be. You want in this world to make sure that you understand that you have bad things. We have bad things. These things will happen and they will continue to happen as long as this world exists in its present form. But we have been told by God that we can be glad in the Lord. So how do I go from being sad to being glad? How do I make this year a year of gladness, not sadness? Because I guarantee you, uh, if I looked back a year ago, would I have any idea what sadnesses I would experience through the year? The answer is no. But I had sadness. And just about every year of my life, I've had sadness. Somebody has been lost to me. Some bad thing has happened. Something has gone wrong somewhere. And it never feels good. You know, it just never feels good when something goes wrong. It hurts. But the Bible tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And mourning is the opposite of depression because when you mourn, what you're doing is you're grieving over something you've lost. You grieve. You go to God and say, God, it hurts. It hurts. But you also go to God with appreciation because it wouldn't hurt unless you had experienced some joy to start with. You know, if God had not given you a blessing, then you would not feel its loss. So knowing that all blessings come from God it, and you thank God just like Job did in the Bible, 
You know, he blessed the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That took a lot of, of, of guts on his part. So I think that God wants us to be glad in him. And mourning is recognizing the pain, but it's also turning it over to the Lord and saying, God, you promised that I will be comforted. And then when you grieve, then God comforts you and you can leave it behind and you can gradually grow and be stronger yourself. And in the scripture here, it also says, and trust in him. Faith is so important because worry and faith don't go together. But I want to tell you right now, isn't it so much easier to worry? Isn't it so much easier even over trivial things? We'll worry about all kinds of things that can go wrong, or we'll worry about things that have gone wrong. It doesn't matter. You'll find ways to worry. So we worry naturally. You will never, ever find instructions in the Bible. Here's how you worry. Have you ever found it difficult to worry? Has it been something you had to go to school to learn? Is it a skill that you develop over time? And the answer is no. I think it's a natural part of our sinful condition to worry. And we need to get rid of that. We've got to obey what God says. And he tells us how to do it. He says, be anxious, which means don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and giving of thanks, let your request be made known to God. If you deliberately take whatever's going wrong in your life and you admit that it's going wrong in your life, that's fine but make sure you go to God and thank him for that wrong when you don't feel like it. Because if you can thank God in those negative times and you can ask God for help in those negative times, because our biggest problem when we don't trust the Lord is that we're trusting ourselves and we don't see a way that we can do it. And I feel that way a lot. And I find it so, so hard. It's such a challenge to believe when you don't see the path ahead. It's so hard. And yet the Bible says we live by faith and not by sight. See, God wants us to trust in him. And by dealing with anxiety, by dealing with worry, whatever it may be, and there are plenty of candidates for worry, trust me, God wants us to literally Pray in every circumstance, thank God in every circumstance, good and bad, because if we can thank God when things are going bad, then when things go well, we can thank him even more. And the devil hates it when we thank the Lord. So trust in him. That's a powerful thing. Trust the Lord. He will get you through it because you've survived everything that you've ever had against you. To this point, you have survived everything. God has gotten you through every challenge you've had in your life to this point. And if we go to heaven and we believe in Jesus and we go to heaven, we're gonna be better off. So God has a win-win for us every single day. And the third thing that we look at here, upright in heart, <clears throat> to be upright in heart, shall glory. Of course, I don't know about you, but I like bragging. I like it when my team wins, you know. Oh, I won. I got a championship. Woohoo! 
we cheer, we're happy, and it feels good because we like to win. There's not a single person doesn't like to win. And glory is associated with winning. But sometimes I look at this world, I see all the defeats. I see court cases that I can't stand the direction that the courts are going or or I see politics going the wrong way and I, I see people who I just shake my head at uh, who are in our public eye and I'm thinking, Lord, where are we winning? <laughs> where are we winning today? It's like, what's going on here? It's like we're getting abused and treated harshly. But the Bible says here that all the upright, not some, <laughs> It's not like, oh, we're going to let some of them glory, but the rest are not. We're going to let those people just waste away. No, he says, all the upright in heart shall glory. That's a good promise. I mean, this is a verse that's good to not just memorize, but it's a good verse to, to meditate on this year because I guarantee you, the devil's going to do everything he can to harm you so that you don't win. Now, what does it mean to win? I don't, a lot of us, who knows what it means? It, but winning is going to be obeying God and passing God's tests for your life. And those tests may be different for different people. So the, the point is, if you're upright in your heart, you're going to win. But if you're not upright in your thinking and in your heart, then you're not going to win. So it comes down to that. It's an internal battle that has nothing to do with what other people are doing. And yet, we always worry about what others do. Now, I mentioned to you that this Psalm 64, written by David, uh, it, it talks about the dangers that he was undergoing. You know, David had many enemies, and these enemies and these who opposed him, he, he, he was well aware of all the bad thing that, that things that were going. He had to live for, for many years as a fugitive. Think about it. He had to run around, avoid King Saul, live in the wilderness, and scrap together a living, protecting his people, even when his people and the leaders of his people had rejected him and called him a criminal but he stayed patriotic through all that time. That would be a miserable thing. He had to deal with people who were saying things about him that weren't true. And did you know that in this world, people lie? Oh man, they do. They will lie about godly people and they will lie. So in Psalm 64 verse one, I wanna give you the background here because we need to recognize the opposition and expect it. Don't go into this year saying, oh, I'm just going to complain about all the negative things being said in the world. No, no, no. Expect it. Expect it because God's setting them up for defeat. He's setting you up for victory. But let's look at how bad they are. So here's what uh, David said in verse 1 of this same Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. <laughs> you know, we're, we're always afraid, aren't we? We're just living in fear constantly. And, and David says, don't let me be afraid, Lord. He's praying. 
He's saying, preserve my life, O Lord, from fear of the enemy because fear leads you to bad things, bad decisions and worry. So he's asking God, help me, Lord, and make sure you take care of me. Another thing he asked for is that he would be hidden from, in verse two, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. And there were plenty of them. David was running away from King Saul, but King Saul had people in his group that hated David and looked at David like he was some sort of enemy and a threat because people don't want to ever change. They don't want a threat to their power. And so if they see you as a threat, they will do what they can to lie about you and do bad things and plot against you. He says in verse three, who sharpen their tongue like a sword. Now, I mean, don't, don't picture that he's, they're actually getting their tongue out and taking the file and making it sharp. That's not what they're doing. But what they are doing is they are carefully crafting and subtly taking their words and shaping them so that they are going to go in and attack David in a way that you don't detect. Uh, so sharp, you don't even feel it. And that's the dangers that we as Christians have today. I'm, I've really been kind of brought to uh, a spirit of being sober and awake about what's going on in the world in recent years. I'm starting to see that not everything that is published is actually true. I'm actually seeing that sometimes people have a reason for even the smallest little things that you see on TV or in an ad that there's something behind almost everything you see. And these, they don't say things that are easily discerned as being bad. They're very subtle and clever and sharp. Some of the sharpest minds are people who are the enemies of God. So these people sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows bitter words, because you see, they're targeting godliness. They're targeting you if you live for God. And these people hate, and they will take advantage of anything today to try to make everybody look like they're some sort of criminal. You take, for instance, there are some well-meaning people who believe in Christian nationalism. And what they mean by that in the most innocent of ways is that they believe that Jesus Christ should be Lord of every nation and that every nation should recognize Jesus as Lord. And that's, the, that's basically it. But when you use that phrase, Christian nationalism, the enemy says, ah, they're wanting to force their beliefs on other people. And so they, they, they then, after they paint you as a Christian nationalists, which both are very good things to be Christian and support your nation. Notice that being a Christian nationalist means that if you're in Argentina, you need to be a Christian nationalist of Argentina. You need to support Argentina. If you're in uh, Germany, you need to support your country in Germany as a Christian. See, that's what Christian nationalism is supposed to mean, but they will make it look like people are trying to force their beliefs. Uh, their Christian beliefs on others. And this then is used to then make people say, hey, 
If they're willing to do that, then they're willing to do acts of terror and they put you on watch lists and they do all these things. This has been done in recent days because they are targeting Christians because their real enemy is not some guy writing on, uh, on, on some sort of social media. Their real enemy is a true believer of Jesus Christ. They hate you. And so they're scaring people into avoiding saying anything about Christ in the public square. Let me just say to you is that Jesus never forces anybody to believe in him. And no human has authority and power over your thoughts, only God. So God is control of your mind and your expression. God is in control of you. And if he does not, if you don't want to do his will, you're gonna go your own way. And no human has the authority over your mind, but God does. But in the other extreme though, I, when they say that Christians are trying to force their ways on people, uh, I don't know about you, but did you know that the lost people are forcing their immorality on people? <laughs> they force people. They actually force their ways on people all the time and they don't care. They say, you just gotta get tough with it. You know, I can't help it. That's just the way it is. We have to save the planet, for instance. Who can be against that? We have to be for justice, right? So we have to be fair and inclusive of everybody. Really, really? Is that, is that what you're saying? And I, I want you to know this because there is an enemy out there who targets you to destroy you, but does it in the name of doing what's right. The Bible said that there will be a day when they will oppose you, they who oppose you will do so for God's sake, thinking that, that God is on their side. It isn't going to work though. The Bible says here in verse four of chapter 64 or Psalm 64, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They are shameless in their attacks. I have seen so many lies spoken through the internet and on television in recent years that I know for a fact are just lies, but they shoot anyway and they keep doing it. David had this happen in his own life. Verse five, they encouraged themselves in an evil matter. I mean, today, how shameful is it? But people are glorifying and parading down the streets and glorifying evil and saying it's good. They talk of laying snares secretly. I have recently found that they're literally trying to trap people, trap people into doing things. The United States government has literally put agents into groups to stir things up so that people can get in trouble and start riots and go to jail. And they've done this, our country's done this. Notice they're laying traps secretly. They didn't go to these poor people and say, hey, I am secretly an agent of the United States and uh, I'm trying to get you in trouble. No, it doesn't work that way. You've got to be careful. Do what Jesus says, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Don't fall for traps, folks, because they're trying to trap us. I remember what it was like to live in the year 2020. I remember the cities burning down. 
I remember the evil that was happening then and nobody was doing anything about it. And then when they had on January 6th, which was a year ago, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, now four years ago or three years ago, because it was in 2021, they made that out to be worse than 9-11. You just have to make your own judgments, folks. You have to make your own judgments. But I'm going to tell you, we have no business falling for their traps because we're not fighting a physical war, okay? We're fighting a spiritual war. And let God deal with these things, okay? David was attacked by Saul, but you know what he never did? He never attacked Saul back. He let God take care of Saul. And we've got to let God take care of the enemy and not, not get too frustrated to the point that we start advocating idiocy, which is violence. We don't need to do this. That's just a trap. and We don't need to fall for it. David had a good thing he said. He said, I don't want to lay, uh, I don't want to put my hand on God's anointed. Saul was still God's anointed and so was David. David was being abused, but Saul was abusing him, but he didn't take personal vengeance and neither should we. And of course, in verse number five, after they talk of laying snares secretly, they say, who will see them? See, they think nobody's going to get them in trouble because they control the ones who are watching. They control. Today in governments across the world, there are people who are doing secret things. Do you think that the, the agencies are going out here saying, oh, we're going to publish that so everybody sees it? No, they're not. We live in dangerous times, folks, and so did David. But, but there is a God in heaven, and he sees everything. Verse 6, they devise iniquities we have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. I mean, why is it that suddenly the whole transgender thing has happened? I mean, literally, would you have imagined that they would actually take children and uh, mutilate their bodies and confuse these children as to whether they're a boy or a girl and actually have the audacity to go back and change the birth certificates of people from the natural birth certificate. It's godless and it's evil, but they devise iniquities. That's what they do. They are so corrupt. Verse seven, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. See, the problem with doing all these bad things is that they make God their enemy. Remember, I don't have to attack them. God will take care of it. And we need to be faithful to God. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. See, there's, the time will come when they will trip over the very things that they're saying, because they will not win forever. They didn't in David's day, and they never have in any generation, because ultimately God prevails. All who see them shall flee away, because when they get in trouble, nobody's going to be standing next to them. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. David did not stay a fugitive forever. <laughs> no, no, no. Eventually, everything worked out to where David became king. And the very people that were lying about David and hated his guts were people who came back to him and says, oh, I'm so sorry, David. <laughs> you were right, you were right. 
That's going to happen. That will happen again. That God is going to take care of these folks eventually. It may take a time, but it will happen someday. Which brings us back finally to the very verse we started with. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. Not some of the upright, all of them. We don't have to take the battle ourselves. We're not, we're not violent. We're, not, we're people of peace. We love people. We've got to love our enemies. We've got to do like David did. Pray for our enemies and do what's right because let things come to you, folks. The Bible says, and Jesus gave us this way to live. Take up, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, what does that mean, deny yourself? Well, first, every day is a day to serve God, not yourself. Love God and love people. Secondly, take up your cross. Do you you have to go out there and and build it and, and, and manufacture it? And the answer is no. The cross will come to you. If you're doing right, something's gonna happen wrong against you. You're gonna feel it. There's going to be no mistake. You will find opposition. It may be opposition even in your own spirit, but you will have opposition in the flesh or opposition in the world or opposition by individuals or the devil himself. But still, whatever that opposition is, you grab it and you embrace it. And you do like Jesus did. He carried that cross to the point he couldn't carry it again. He carried it all the way till he collapsed. We've got to do it every day. And then he says, follow me. Well, I want to tell you, most of us just think he fought, went to the hill and he died. And oh, that's a very sad end. No, that wasn't the end. That's halfway through. <laughs> because the end was he went to the grave and came out alive. He's alive today. And we have hope in his resurrection. So when we follow him, we get beyond the cross. We emerge victoriously because God says here that all the upright in heart shall glory. It's going to happen. And that's why I love this verse, that we will be glad and that we will trust in the Lord and that we will, we're going to brag. We're going to win, but we're not going to brag on ourselves. We're going to brag on God for getting us through the hard times. So he takes us to better times. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day, and thank you for loving us. Without your love, we would be hopeless. And I do ask for your grace to uh, extend itself to each individual here, that you would touch the hearts of us as we sing our song of invitation so that we would truly be your servants in this day, a day of wickedness, a day of, of evil, but a day that you've made for us to live in and a day you've given to us to prevail. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet and we'll sing hymn number 290. Hymn number 290. Thank you. Let's stand and sing it. I am thine, O Lord. 290. I am thine.